Okay, it tells me I'm live. So we're getting started just a little bit early. Okay. All right, everything's working. So uh, we are looking at the kingdom of God, and we're looking at the kingdom of God and the early part of Genesis. And so we're laying a foundation for how the kingdom shows up in the early part of Genesis or things that we we um, need to think about in relation to God's kingdom. And then once we get through this, we're going to head on to the later part of Genesis and we'll have to uh, spend a little time with uh, Abraham. I don't know how much time we will spend with him because we covered the Abrahamic covenant pretty sufficiently when we covered the covenants. We'll also have to talk about the land because the land and the kingdom go together, but we covered that pretty sufficiently as well. So we'll, we'll just probably think about it a little bit differently. But uh, then we have to talk about uh, Melchizedek, how he fits in with the kingdom. And we'll have to talk about how uh, God tells the children of Israel that they will be a kingdom of priests to him. What does that mean and how does it relate to this topic? But we're not there yet. Uh, we have to finish up the kingdom in the early part of Genesis. So let me open in a word of prayer and uh, we'll get going. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us, and we're thankful to be able to be here uh, tonight, even getting quite a bit of rain now, and uh, we ask that you would just be with us in our time of study, and uh, we ask for understanding, and uh, Lord, we ask not just to know these things, but that we would be able to then see all the implications that it might have for our life and for our church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I think we're on Noah and the kingdom. Noah and the kingdom. So that's going to be Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And uh, we're going to look at verse 1. Genesis chapter 9. Verse 1 and uh, verse 7. Okay, so you're going to want to find that, put something there to hold that place because we'll be coming back and forth from it. And um, we'll be looking at some related passages as well. So here in Genesis 9, we have what is essentially a restatement of what God said in Genesis 1 verse 26 and 28. So let's remind ourselves what those two verses say. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we see that God says, it's gonna create man. This is God's intention to create man and to give him dominion over all the fish, all the birds, all the cattle, over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so now let's turn to Genesis 9. You should have your finger there. And let's notice what God says to Noah after the flood. Okay. That's what God says to Noah after the flood. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now drop down to verse seven. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So God is essentially restating what he had uh, told uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, a question that we might want to ask is, why? Why does God do this? And why does he do it in the way that he does it? He doesn't say exactly the same thing that we find in Genesis does talk about multiplying and filling the earth. And what I want us to notice here in connection to the kingdom, and especially in connection to the mediatorial role that man plays in God's kingdom, is that that role has never been lost. It's not taken away. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, it was not uh, taken away. It became harder. We looked at that last time. It became harder, but it wasn't taken away. So there's really no need for God to tell Noah, have dominion and subdue. He doesn't need to tell him that. That's what men have been doing. But he needs to tell him, be fruitful and multiply, because Noah is like a second Adam. He's going to be the beginning of the human race. Remember, there's nobody on the face of the earth except for Noah, his sons, and their wives. That's it. Um, so we want to keep that in mind as we look at this. And, and let's consider, I want us to consider some parallels between Adam and Noah. Because Noah really is a second Adam. Let's look at some of these Parallels. We just read one of the parallels, and that's where it was originally commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, to populate the earth. And here we saw in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, you have that same command. And so in both cases, in the day of Adam, when he was created, he and Eve, and in the day that Noah come, comes off the ark, the earth is unpopulated. 
Okay, unpopular. In Adam's case, there's just no other people around. Nobody has ever been in existence. Adam and Eve are the first couple. In Noah's case, the rest of humanity has been wiped out in judgment for sin. I also want us to see that both Adam and Noah are farmers. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is what God does and tells Adam. Then the Lord God took man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So he's a farmer. He's a farmer. Now I'll turn over turn, or turn back to Genesis 9 and look at verse 20. Genesis 9, look at verse 20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. So both Noah and Adam are tending the ground. They are growing stuff from the ground. So they're, they're both the beginning of humanity, and they are both farmers. And now I want us to see that both have sins that are connected to shame and nakedness. They both have sins connected to shame and nakedness. So let's go back to Genesis 3. Back to Genesis 3, verse 7, then 8, then 10. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, 8, and 10. It says, uh, Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 10. So he said, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So you see the result of Adam and Eve's sin, particularly Adam here, is that there is a realization of nakedness and that brings shame upon them. Um, so there's a connection between their sin, nakedness, and shame. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 9 again. Genesis chapter 9, verse 21 through 23. Genesis chapter 9, verse 21 through 23, and this was talking about Noah. Then he, Noah, drank of the wine and was drunk and, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took, gar took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So here we go. Here's Noah's sin. Noah's sin is that he becomes drunk. 
and him being drunk is connected then to this nakedness and their shame that comes uh, from that. Matter of fact, his whole his whole thing is that uh, Ham is in fact shaming his father in this because you know uh, he, he's in there in a, in a, in a drunken state. So in both cases, the result of their sin, Adam eating of the tree of knowledge and evil and Noah getting drunk is that they become naked and they become ashamed. So uh, they, they're both the beginning of humanity. They're both farmers and they both have these sins that are connected to these things. Uh, the, fourth, the fourth parallel between Adam and Noah is that both experience a radical change in their relationship with creation. Both experience a radical change in their relationship with creation. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Then Adam, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. Now notice what it says. Think about the difference that Adam's going to experience here in relation to creation, particularly the ground. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So what before was a circumstance where the ground would yield up its fruit to Adam, um, readily, just with some care and tending of it. Now, he's going to have to labor to produce food from the ground. So that's a pretty radical change. Now, I'll turn back to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. Genesis 9, verse 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird and on all that moved on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. So he still has dominion over them. Okay, they're given into your hand. Verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So God is saying here that unlike before, where man were only to eat vegetables, now they're allowed to eat meat. And uh, what kind of meat are they allowed to eat? Are they given any restrictions? Are they given any restrictions on the meat they can eat here? No restrictions. It says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. All right? So every, every 
kind of animal that you want to butcher, you can eat. All right. And uh, but what we see here is this is a radical change. It's a radical change in man's relationship to the creation. And now the creation, the animals are going to be afraid of men. So this is why when you turn your light on at night, the deer run away. You know, uh, this is why uh, you have animals that, that don't react well to the presence of men. In Adam's day, it wasn't like that. But in Noah's day, it's going to be like that. So there's the fourth parallel. The fifth parallel is uh, that Noah was not the curse remover. So Adam was not the curse remover. As a matter of fact, he was the guy who brought the curse on. Uh, but Noah parallels Adam in the fact that he is not the curse remover. Um, so clearly Noah isn't the one that removes the curse. He is not the redeemer that God had promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, the curse on the ground is still in place, and now Noah is not only going to have trouble with the ground, he's going to have trouble with the animals since they're going to be afraid of him. But he is not uh, the one who's going to remove the curse. So we have this restatement after the flood to multiply and fill the earth. We see that Noah is very much a kind of a second kind of Adam. You see all these parallels. And we also need to notice that Noah fails. He fails as the mediatorial king, the ruler. Um, we see this particularly in how he handles himself in, at the beginning of or actually the middle of chapter nine, where he gets drunk and then his one son doesn't behave. And so we see that he has failed in this respect to be a proper mediatorial ruler over the earth for God. So that takes us through Noah and the kingdom. Any questions about that? Any questions, Pat? Well, it just misbehaved. I mean, Ham is the one who was shaming his father. Um, so that brings up the next major section in our Bible, which is the Tower of Babel. So let's turn to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. And uh, in Genesis 11, I think what we see here is that there's a kind of recognition that man is not so much the mediatorial ruler as much as it is mankind. Mankind takes this ruling place in God's kingdom on earth. And, and so let me... We're going to be in Genesis 9, but I want you to go back to Genesis, uh, or I said Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis 11. I want you to go back to Genesis 9 real quick so we can see the context here for the Tower of Babel. So God says 
in Genesis 9-1 to Noah and his sons. Um, he says to them, it says, so God blessed Noah and his sons. Okay, so what God says in Genesis chapter 9 is not just to Noah, but it's to his sons as well. And so this is introducing the idea that it's not just Noah who's going to be the sole tutorial king, but mankind in some way is, is going to function like this. And uh, in those places where it talks about being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, when you see the word you there, it's plural. It's a plural you. Um, I think uh, in verse 7, if you have a King James Version, it actually says, be ye fruitful. Be ye fruitful. And ye is ancient English for the plural of you. So, again, even as with Adam and Eve, when God tells Noah and his sons to do this, this is not suggesting they are the only ones who are to do this. And so the people that come after Noah and his sons are to do this as well. So we, we see that in contrast, if you look at Genesis 9, just look at here real quick here. In verse 6, it talks about what happens when a man sheds another man's blood. But in verse 7, it talks about being multiplying. So one verse 6 is negative. Verse 7 is positive. Uh, verse 6 deals with a penalty. Verse 7 deals with God's intention for man to flourish. Okay, So you see a little bit of contrast there. So this command that God gives is to Noah and his sons, and then it carries on to their descendants. Also, I want you to see here in verse 6, capital punishment is to be executed by society, by society. So the institution of the death penalty for a capital crime is now enacted. And this is a new idea. This is a new, okay, a new thing. When Cain murdered Abel, what was his punishment? Banishment, right? Not, not death. He didn't get executed when he when premeditated murder. He didn't get executed. Okay, when Lamech confessed to his wives that he murdered a young man. Was he put to death? No, no. So uh, there was no death penalty up to this time, and now it's being enacted. Um, in part, this new command is needed because of the change in the relationship between man and animals. We just read that in verse 2. We just read that in verse 2, that there's this change between man and animals. Animals are going to be afraid of men, and men are going to eat animals. Okay, so there's the why they're afraid of them. Men's going, men are going to start eating them. Now, look at verse 4, Genesis 9, 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Verse 5. Surely, for your lifeblood... 
I will demand a reckoning. So let me rephrase this. Surely for you as human beings, for the lifeblood of human beings, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So this death penalty is not just a death penalty for human beings. It's also a death penalty for animals that uh, would kill a human being. All right. So the reason that is, is because um, when you back your house cat into a corner, and get them all mad and stirred up, you might get scratched. But when you back a tiger into the corner, you're going to get dead, right? So there's a difference. There's a difference, all right? So this is, this is God's way of elevating and protecting life. There's going to be a death penalty uh, connected to it. So this capital punishment was to demonstrate and sustain man and his special place in creation. Man is made in the image of God. Therefore, if any animal kills a man, according to this passage, what happens to that animal? Dead. You kill it. You don't say, well, was Billy poking it with a stick? You know? No, if an animal kills a man, the animal dies. That's the principle here, okay? Now, um, we might ask the question, why, why do we think that capital punishment has to be a societal action? Why does it have to be a societal action? Well, first, from verse 5, we see that if uh, animal, any animal kills a man, the animal should be killed. There's no distinction between an animal intentionally or unintentionally killing a man. You know, a man-eating tiger intentionally kills men, intentionally kills men. A grizzly bear, Sal, protecting her cubs, isn't trying to kill you. She's just trying to protect her cubs. I mean, the problem is you both end up dead, okay, in both situations. If you're attacked by a man-eating tiger, you're going to end up dead. If you're attacked by a grizzly sow protecting her cubs, you're probably going to end up dead. That doesn't matter. The law is the animal, the animal dies. Um, and so that's what happens there. Secondly, no further clarification is given regarding animals that kill men. But in verse 6, we see that it clarifies what is meant by God requiring a reckoning when one man kills another man. And so we see that in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man's blood, uh, by man, his blood shall be shed, for he's in the image of God. He made man. So that tells us why capital punishment is okay. Now, this phrase here, whoever sheds man, man's blood, 
or a little bit earlier in verse five, it talks about uh, lifeblood here, but this idea of shedding blood is almost always in reference to the unjustified killing of someone, the unjustified killing of someone. So this command would exclude uh, justified deaths. In other words, you know, these blood feuds that happen between people where person in this family kills somebody in this family. So this family retaliates and they kill somebody in the other family. And then that family says, well, you killed one of us, so we're going to kill one of you. And it goes back and forth, Hatfields and McCoys, you know, that type of thing. And um, so this isn't, this immediately avoids any of that because we got, this is only going to apply to unjustified killing. So when you execute capital uh, punishment, you're not uh, doing an unjustified killing. Um, and this, this command also probably excludes accidental deaths as well. Now that's debatable, but it probably does exclude that as well. Uh, third thing we see here related to this being a societal action is that in the case of man's death, there has to be a determination whether this death is unjustified or not. Now, who's going to make that decision? Who's going to make that decision? What's one of the principles that we see expressed throughout the Bible in determining whether something is true or not? Witnesses. Two or three witnesses. A thing is established on two or three witnesses. So... I think that's the principle that we're seeing in action here, that society is going to be the ones who determine whether this is a justified or an unjustified death. They're going to make that judgment, and when they decide it's an unjustified death, it's going to be society who kills the man, not an individual. And this also removes any type of guilt. I mean, Let's say you worked in the prison system of a state with capital punishment. And you are a prison guard and you are on the death squad. And it's your job to push the button, flip the switch, however it is. You know, why aren't you guilty? Why aren't, why aren't you guilty? of killing someone when you push a button and that inmate is executed. Because you're not, you're not putting that inmate to death. Society, the law, is putting that person to death, not you. So it, this adds protection uh, for man as well. So it seems that one of the ultimate expressions of a mediatorial ruler is the decision about life and death, making a life and death decision, and that this has been delegated to society or men collectively and not to any one particular person. 
And this, again, supports the idea that even after the flood, even after Noah, man has retained this mediatorial role, but it's not vested in necessarily a single man, but in a society. And this leads up to the Tower of Babel. Okay, the Tower of Babel. So let's go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And I want you to notice here in verses 4 through 7, how many times that society or humanity at this point, because everybody's together, um, is mentioned as a whole. Notice what it says, verse 4. And they, that's number one, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is to the heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people, it's a group, the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So that's just those uh, verses right there, those three verses. I mean, you can do verse 7 as well, where it says, come, let us go down. Let's talk about the Godhead. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So throughout these, just this short passage here that I just read, over and over again, it's referring to man as a collective whole. As a collective whole. And we see, going along with this, that humanity is dealt with as a whole. They're dealt with as. God doesn't deal with individuals here. He's dealing with humanity as a whole. Let's pick it up at verse 7. Uh, come, let us, that's the Godhead, go down and confuse their languages. Not his language, not her language, their language. That they may not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them. He has scattered all of humanity abroad from there over the face of the earth. And they ceased building the city. So you see how God is dealing with them as a whole, not just as individuals. And I think that gives us an indication that uh, we're talking about society here. We're talking about collected uh, humanity here. So the response of God to the sin at the Tower of Babel is not the same as it was with Adam or even Noah, where through the sin of one man, the consequence of that sin affected those who would follow. But at the Tower of Babel, God dealt with all humanity, every single person at one time. Now, 
after the record of the Tower of Babel, what comes in your Bible? What's the next passage? Okay, the, so they're scattered after that. What's the very next thing? Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Yeah. 11, 10 comes before chapter 12. Okay. So what's in verse 10 of chapter 11? This is not a trick question. That's right. So the genealogy of Shem is mentioned. Now, why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Why, why insert this genealogy here? Okay, what, what's this genealogy doing here in the Bible? Do what? Going to lead us to Abraham. That's the main thing. Now, notice how this genealogy goes. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you to see the pattern. This genealogy of Shem, Shem was 100 years old when he begot our foxad two years after the flood. That there gives you your chronological starting point. Two years after the flood. Two years after the flood, how old is Shem? When, when Noah started building the ark, how old was Shem? So, so we're getting, we're, you know, it doesn't mention Noah here. doesn't mention how old Noah is. It doesn't mention all that here, but we need to pay attention to it. So uh, how old is Noah when uh, the flood ends? Six hundred. He's going to, he's Noah's going to live uh, to be 900, 950 years old, right? Oh, yeah. Now, so here's the genealogy of Shem. 100 years old, he begot uh, Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years. He got sons and daughters. So how old is Shem going to be? Yeah, he's, he's going to be old. So 600 years old. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot uh, Salah. After he begot Salah, our fox I'd lived 403 years, begot sons and daughters. So it's going to go on and on through this. And so my point to you here is that you can figure out this genealogy and you can calculate the years of this genealogy. And when you do calculate the years of this genealogy, guess which two people overlap. I mean, we really don't care much about Peleg and Rue and Sirug. Well, well, I'm not going backwards. I'm going to start with Noah and we're going to go forwards. Noah, Noah, and Abraham. Noah's going to be old guy. Abraham's going to be young guy. And they're going to overlap. Now, what's that tell you? Do you think Noah was alive at the Tower of Babel? He almost certainly was. Now, maybe he wasn't. Everybody else on this list was. Almost certainly was. 
What's that? Right, right. Because it's just we're setting up for Shem, but it's assumed Noah. I mean, we know Noah's Shem's father. So it is absolutely possible that Abraham, that Abraham would have been at the Tower of Babel. Could have been. So where's Abraham from? Yeah, yeah, wasn't Noah Ron back then. He's from Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. Okay. Now, do any of you know where Ur is? No. They're at they're at Babylon right now. When Tower of Babel, that's Babylon. Okay. It's south. It's south. There's actually people think there's two places. One's north, one's south. I'm going with south. Okay. If we were in Pennsylvania, I'd probably say north. Some of y'all get that a little bit later. <laughs> so it's probably south, southern Mesopotamia, where he's from. Now, doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? God is scattering the people over the face of the earth. And here's Noah, his part of humanity, whatever language they're speaking, they go south. So it's interesting to think about, not only does this genealogy get us up to Abram, but it also shows us, man, most of these people would have been alive at the Tower of Babel. It also indicates to us how lifespans start to shorten. They shorten dramatically uh, as you get into the second half of this list. So that would be something for you to do is to go back and uh, figure out all these ages and get you a little chart and write them down. Start with the flood. You know where floods ground zero. Uh, you know that uh, Shem has his son two years after the flood. Just write that down. Okay. And uh, figure it out. You can, you can work out this chronology that's really important. So, um, we're working our way up to Abraham. Now, think about this. Adam is a mediatorial ruler who failed. Death and expulsion from the garden. He failed. He was still, he did not get removed as the mediatorial ruler, but he failed. He failed at his job. Uh, the heads of household were mediatorial rulers. We kind of get a picture of that from Job. Uh, from Job, at the beginning of Job, when his sons and daughters went out and had big feasts and festivals and things like that, what did Job do? Offer a sacrifice. Now, who offers sacrifices? Priests. Priests. So it seems like that the head of household is going to be acting as some type of mediatorial ruler over their little area. But then what, what happens next? You got the flood. You got the flood. So when men kind are just left on their own, they don't do what is right. Okay, When they're, they're put in charge of things, they don't do what's right. Uh, you have the flood. Then you got Noah that comes along. Of course, he fails as a role of mediatorial ruler. He 
He sins by getting drunk. And then you have society as the mediatorial ruler, and they fail, Tower of Babel. So picture this. First guy fails. So the most perfect human being, the outside of Christ, most perfect human being that's ever been. Doesn't have all the problems we have today, right? He was innocent. Adam was innocent. So here's Adam, no sin, no sin nature, nothing like that, nothing inherently corrupt in him. He fails. Okay. Then we see when men are just left to maintain their relationship with God on their own, what do they do? They fail. At the Tower of Babel, when men come together, what do they do? They fail. Now, we don't have a whole lot of options left here, do we? You can't do it by yourself. You can't do it with others. <laughs> and so you see what's happening here is you start with Adam, then it comes out to all of humanity, okay? And God wipes him out, and it goes back down to Noah. Then it comes out to all humanity again. Tower of Babel. He scatters them everywhere. And then what's God going to do after the Tower of Babel? He's going to bring it right back in to one man again. Time, God is specifically going to choose for this man, and he's going to do this man. So eventually, the perfect mediatorial ruler will come to that one man. So we see this happening. It's unfolding in the first part of the book of Genesis. And uh, so next week, we're not going to get into it this week, but next week we're going to start looking at uh, Abraham, Abram. I'm going to look how the Abrahamic covenant has things in it that point us towards this kingdom idea that we're studying. We're going to see that in the covenant. We're going to see when God promises Abraham and his descendants a land that this fits in with the kingdom idea, right? One of the things that you have to have in the kingdom idea is a realm. Remember, we talked about that a long time ago, it seems now. But we talked about things that you got to have. You got to have a ruler, you got to have a king, but you also have to have a realm, a kingdom, a sphere to rule. And so the land that God has promised to Abraham and his descendants, that fits that idea of kingdom. Um, and then we're going to see that uh, Abraham, in fact, does operate as something like a king. You realize that? So when Abraham went to stay with Abimelech, you know, and he said to his wife, tell him you're my sister, or tell him, you're, yeah, you're my sister. So he lied, and uh, Sarah lied, so a bunch of liars. And uh, after that was over, it says that Abraham and Abimelech made a covenant. Abimelech's a king. Kings make covenants with other kings, so he's acting very much like a king. And uh, then we have the account of Melchizedek, his meeting of Melchizedek, you know, the king of righteousness. So there's something happening there, I think, related 
to it. And that's going to take us almost all the way up through the end of, of Genesis, okay, on the kingdom. So we're going to get into that uh, next week. So uh, any questions? Any questions this week? Either from what we've covered today or what we've covered before in this study. Conway. Yeah, as far as I, the question is about the shedding of blood. So if you look that phrase up in the your Old Testament, what you're going to find is there is one, one place in your Old Testament where it uses that terminology and that idea for a justified killing. Every other place, and it happens, I'm not sure how many times it happens. Let me see here real quick. Um, I didn't write it down. Um, you know, it occurs, it's not really, really common in the Old Testament, but it's not rare in the Old Testament. But um, the only time it's used that I can tell of a, of a justified killing is when it's used of King David and his military conquests. And those would all be justified because that's military combat. Okay. Every other place that this idea of shedding the blood occurs, it's all unjustified. So just the, the idea of shedding blood is talking about, I would, I mean, another way we can say is murder. If that clarifies it a little bit. There's several words in Hebrew that talk about killing. One's murder. Yeah, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the word murder. Frank. Right. Well, so uh, we're given permission to eat meat there. Um, but that's not the first place. I don't think. I don't think that's the first place where we see uh, it is. Maybe it is. Um, um, Nimrod, where's he mentioned? Anybody remember where Nimrod's mentioned? I thought he's with a, a descendant of Cain. Uh, well, that's terrible. Chapter 10. Okay, chapter 10. Okay. So... Um, so just shortly after they're given permission to eat, yet this guy who's known as a mighty hunter before the Lord. So it seems like he's going out and killing a lot of animals. Of course, who else like to go out and go hunting? Esau, that's right. Esau was a hunter as well. Okay. But, uh, 
Yeah, so we, we can, uh, we're giving permission to eat all of the animals that we want. <laughs> all of the beasts. Any other, any other comments or questions? All right, well, remember, as we're studying this, as we're studying this idea of the kingdom, we always want to keep in mind the big picture. So the big picture is when God begins creation, when he creates the heavens and the there is no mediatorial ruler. God is ruling directly and immediately over all that he created. And then he creates Adam on the seventh day. Now he gives Adam the commission to be the first mediatorial ruler. God is turning the rule of his creation on earth over to man. And as far as I can tell, that has never been taken away. That has never been taken. And so you see that happen. But then as you work through the Bible, you see how man has failed. Failed, failed, Adam failed. The generation of the flood and before failed. Noah failed. Society of Tower of Babel fails. You know, and then we'll even see things that happen in the life of Israel where they fail. But all along, God is working. And then God is going to bring about the perfect mediatorial ruler. Okay, this is one of the aspects of the necessary humanity of Jesus Christ. It was necessary for God to come as man to offer the sacrifice for the sins of man, right? You can't have an angel being sacrificed or some other being being sacrificed for men. You have to have a man that's being sacrificed for men. But also in all of that, that even goes back before that, is you got to have a man as the mediatorial ruler over the earth. And that's what you see. That's what one of the things God has accomplished. So I always kind of keep the big picture in mind, Frank. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Genesis 9 is very clear that uh, there is no animal that can ever be valued rightly above the lowest human being in the world. The lowest, most despised, worst human being in the world has more value than the most magnificent animal in the world. They don't even compare. He made him. God made man in his image. Every single human being is an image bearer of God. Humans are the only beings, only things, that are image bearers of God. Angels aren't image bearers of God. Only human beings. So every human being has an infinitely is infinitely more valuable 
than any other created thing. Right, yeah. So society gets all messed up in how they value things and how they will use what is human in a way that devalues humanity. They, they, and you, you don't, it's not just us that do it day with abortion and, and, uh, you know, and the different medical research that takes place on aborted, uh, uh, baby parts and things like that. We, man has done all this through history. He has devalued certain people so he can exploit them. You know, it's very easy. As soon as you determine a person's not a human being, it's easy to devalue them and do whatever you want. All right, let me pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We're thankful uh, for your word and uh, we're thankful that we can read it and think about it. And uh, Lord, just give us more understanding about your kingdom and what you're doing and the importance of this, uh, not only in understanding the Bible, but the importance of it that it would have on us even today in 2023. And uh, so we commit the rest of our day to you. We ask for safety as we uh, return home in the dark and wet roads. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.